With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we'll have this week's almond update. But our top story today, it's the final day of the World Ag Expo. Ryan German has this interview from the event. And we are out here on the third and final day of the World Ag Expo. And uh, who are we joined with this morning? Megan Lawson, Marketing Manager for the International Agri Center. And now this is going to be the third day. Uh, I know my feet are a little bit tired. I'm sure some other people's are as well. But uh, for people that might not have been able to come make it out, what's going to be on the agenda for today? So Thursday, we have some awesome things planned for today. We have our Toyota drawing for our giveaway of the Toyota Tundra. Um, So we're happy to continue to partner with Valley Children's for that. Um, The tickets are $5. You could get your tickets today. So don't forget to to get your chance to win that Toyota Tundra. They can be found at gate two or inside of gate 12 and the drawing happens at three o'clock. We also have our livestock demonstrations taking place in the WW Pavilion. Demonstrations from the Western States Beef Masters Breeders Association, California Rain Cow Horse. Um, So get out there and check out some of those demos we have and, and also our seminars out in our seminar trailers as well. And that's one thing that uh, is is pretty cool this year is there's a lot more, it seems a lot more lively, a lot of uh, action taking place. And that was by design this year, correct? It was. So we have just found that a a lot of exhibitors are wanting to demo their products right in front of people attending the show, really showing them a sample of how they work. So we have a lot of movement on the grounds this year, kind of getting away from more of that static show. So we have our typical ride and drives from Toyota, um, Agco Fent. Um, We have Gus doing a demonstration, but we also have two new ones from Can-Am and Bosun Motors. And like I said, we just have a lot of demos going on in people's spaces, a lot of drones, which are new for this year, which we're happy to bring that innovation and technology to this show because that's what we're about. Um, But you can find a lot of these demos just as you're walking throughout the grounds, which is really exciting for people to see all this hands-on. And now this is the third and final day. And uh, so if you haven't had a chance to come out, today's your last chance to come out here and do this. But uh, you've got a little bit different hours for today, right? We do. So we are open from 9 to 4 today. And if you haven't come or you have come and you're trying to squeeze everything in, I highly recommend downloading the World Ag Expo mobile application, which is available on Apple and Android. And that's really going to help you map out your show. So like I said, if it's your first day visiting us, you'll make sure to hit those spots you really want to see. And if you're trying to squeeze everything in before you close that you've been out here the past couple days, try to find something new. Definitely use that app. It's going to be your best um, tool right there in your hand. The 2022 USDA Census of Agriculture is now out, and it shows how important California agriculture is. Fresno County ranked number one in the U.S. for agricultural sales. Agricultural sales in Fresno County were greater than those in 23 states. After Fresno County, the remaining top 10 California counties for ag production are Tulare, Monterey, Kern, Merced, Imperial, San Joaquin, Stanislaw, Santa Barbara, and Kings. Census of Agriculture information, which is collected directly from producers, shows a continued decline in the total number of California farms. However, the data also shows an increase in the value of agriculture sales in California. The 2022 Census of Agriculture data shows the following key trends for the state. The number of farms decreased to 63,134, a 10% decline from 2017. The average size of farms increased by 10% to 383 acres. That covers 24.2 million acres of farmland. 
the market value of agricultural products sold totaled $59 billion, which is up nearly $14 billion from 2017. Total farm production expenses totaled $49.3 billion, which is up $11.5 billion from 2017. California is the top state using renewable energy-producing systems in agriculture. Solar is the most common renewable energy-producing system on farms and ranches in the Golden State. The average age of the California farmer, 59.9, which is up from 59.2 in 2017. With more from the Census of Agriculture, here's Rod Bain. Fewer farms in the U.S., yet more new and beginning and young farmers. Some of the top takeaway points from the 2022 Census of Agriculture. It allows us to take a snapshot in time, allows us to compare what has occurred over the five-year period. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, among those presenting the findings Tuesday from the once-every-five-year look at our nation's ag sector. Other notable data points from the census, U.S. farmland makes up almost 40% of our nation's total land. Family farms constitute 95% of all farms in America. The response rate to the 2022 Census of Ag, 61%, with more than 40% of those survey responses submitted online. Also online, the complete 2022 Census of Ag, available at www.nass.usda.gov slash agcensus, all one word. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. With today's National Spotlight, here's Chuck Zimmerman. At CattleCon 2024, I'm visiting with Jessica Newberry. And uh, Jessica, I know that you work for Furback. And uh, I want you to tell us a little bit about what you do for the company and, and a little bit about the company itself. Absolutely. So I'm the Senior Technical Services Veterinarian for Verback Livestock. And Verback is actually the number five ruminant company in the world, but we only entered the U.S. two years ago and with our first product, which is a generic telathomycin called Tulacin 100. And then in August of 22, we came with Tenetrel, which is an enrofloxacin injectable solution. You're completely new to, to some of us. And how long did you say you've been, been We've here? We've um, been present in the U.S. with livestock products for two years. Two years. So. Okay. We launched, and then the first thing that we did was automatically start doing field work. Being from Missouri in the Show Me State, I wanted um, people to show me about how products work, not right. just in the lab. So that's something we've really taken to heart and have spent a lot of um, effort doing. So, um, you know, the, the, the kind of product you have now, and I know you've got something in the pipeline, uh-huh. too. Uh, what is what is the product again and what what's what does it do yep. what, what does it do for producers absolutely so the first one is tulisin 100 it's a telathomycin injectable solution so it's a generic of draxin um, and it's labeled for treatment of bovine respiratory disease control of bovine respiratory disease and then treatment of pink eye and foot rot so it does a lot of things um, it's extremely effective against those bacteria that are on the label and um really easily injected. One of the things that Verbeck did to set ourselves apart is we put this protective shell around every 250 ml and 500 ml bottle of Tulisin 100. I've broken bottles in practice. It always makes me cringe. So with this protective shell, you can drop it consecutively from a height of four feet onto concrete. 93% of the time it doesn't break. It's even more break resistant than plastic bottles. So, um, you know, when I hang it on my chute, I know it's pretty safe. 
for people that want to know more information about you, uh, tell us a little about your team and, and who they would talk to and how did they get in touch with them? Absolutely. So um, just starting out, we have four sales reps really in the central um, states. So we have um, Tyler Hartwell is in Nebraska. He does South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa. We have Jeff Chapman for Missouri, the western, or excuse me, eastern part of Kansas and Oklahoma. We have Macy McGraw that covers Texas and New Mexico. And then finally, uh, we have Teresa Bibbs, who's Colorado, Wyoming. So just starting out, uh, myself, and then we have a vice president of Livestock Health. But looking to grow as we bring more products to the industry. Well, before we close, anything else you'd like uh, producers to know about Verbeck that we haven't touched on? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is we're committed to growth. We um, have a great portfolio globally, and we're working to bring many of those products over the next five to ten years. And we're really putting... um, that together by bringing a whole new product line in mid-year. So hopefully producers will hear more about it in June or July. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jessica, for visiting with me here. We are at Calicon 2024, and I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, a dairy checkoff partnership is putting hot chocolate milk into the hands of students during a pilot with a leading school food service company. Michael Clements reports. National Dairy Council and Chartwell's K-12, which serves more than 2 million meals daily at 700 U.S. school districts, have launched the Hot Chocolate Milk Program in 58 schools. Lisa Hatch, Vice President of Business Development for National Dairy Council, says the pilot, which will run through the end of the school year, features real chocolate milk served hot during breakfast and lunch. There's this interesting shift happening with young people right now, and especially when it comes to their attitude about healthy eating. So as it turns out, chocolate milk or hot chocolate really hits the spot. It's not just a treat that kids really love, but it also meets the healthy beverage guidelines set by schools. National Dairy Council began working with Chartwell's K-12 last year on a dairy-based smoothie program, which is available to all Chartwell's schools following a successful pilot. We have a really proven track record with Chartwell's. In 2023-24, we partnered with them and launched a smoothie program in about 130 of their schools, which was really well received and drove significant dairy and meal participation across the board. The smoothie program success led to a what's-the-next-big-thing discussion between the partners. They focused on hot chocolate, which had a global market size valued at $3.8 billion in 2022 and is expected to grow by $5.77 billion by 2030. So what we're seeing so far is really positive. Kids are very excited. Again, this is anecdotal at this point, but what we're hearing is it's so successful in some situations that it's a little bit too good because every kid wants to take it and really they're drinking it down to the last drop, which is great to see. Michael Clements reporting. In other livestock news, the American Sheep Industry Association highlights the U.S. sheep industry's economic contributions. The U.S. sheep industry plays an important role in supporting the economic viability and vitality of rural America and beyond. A U.S. sheep industry economic contribution analysis was recently conducted on behalf of the American Sheep Industry Association. The production sector of the U.S. sheep industry itself is backlined to the processing and manufacturing sector of the industry, supplying slaughter lambs and sheep, wool, and fluid milk as inputs for further processed and manufactured outputs. Contribution to the U.S. economy from the production sector totaled $1.4 billion in sales, supporting 8,492 jobs, $494 million in total labor income, $833.2 million in total value added, 
and $151.4 million in total local, state, and federal taxes. Contribution to the U.S. economy from the processing and manufacturing sector totaled $3.7 billion in total output sales. Total contribution results from the production and processing and manufacturing sectors of the U.S. sheep industry are not additive due to the linkage structure of the analysis. The analysis was based on 2021 data. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to get the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour, and it is available on both Android and Apple devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. The American Farmland Trust has released a white paper highlighting the climate benefits of agricultural conservation easements, emphasizing their role in addressing climate change. The paper discusses five ways in which these easements mitigate climate change, including preventing land conversion to high-emission developed uses, encouraging practices that sequester carbon, and protecting lands such as grasslands and wetlands that serve as carbon sinks. AFT's research based on a variety of owners whose land was protected by federal programs indicates higher adoption rates of climate-smart practices among eased landowners compared to the general farming population. The paper also explores how permanently protecting agricultural land can help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, particularly when coupled with the smart growth strategies. AFT is encouraging increased support for agricultural conservation easement programs at all levels of government. Four bipartisan lawmakers have initiated the Congressional Agricultural Trade Caucus, aiming to enhance U.S. agricultural trade. The primary mission of the caucus revolves around fostering policies that invigorate agricultural exports, fortify market access, and dismantle unnecessary trade hurdles. Central to the caucus's agenda is addressing mounting concerns over agricultural trade deficits and over-reliance on specific markets. By advocating for enforceable trade agreements and expanding market access, the caucus aims to safeguard American farmers against economic vulnerabilities and diversify export avenues. Additionally, the Agriculture Trade Caucus intends to provide support in resolving trade disputes and navigating complex trade negotiations. The formation of the caucus was met with support from agricultural groups including the American Farm Bureau Federation and Farmers for Free Trade. USDA scientists have identified a potential weakness in the invasive spotted lanternfly. The insect, originally from China, has spread to 13 states since its discovery in Pennsylvania in 2014. Research that was recently published in the Journal of Economic Entomology reveals the lanternflies are attracted to vibrations, particularly those emitted by electrical power lines. This discovery made at the USDA Center for Medical, Agricultural, and Veterinary Entomology in Gainesville, Florida, opens new avenues for pest control with plans to develop traps and disrupt mating behavior. Successful implementation of these methods could reduce reliance on insecticides, saving resources, and minimizing environmental impacts. The breakthrough underscores the importance of ongoing research to combat invasive species, as highlighted by the USDA National Invasive Species Information Center. The 2024 Rangeland Summit is coming up soon in Stockton. The theme for this year's summit is It Takes a Community, Ranchers, Land, and Neighbors, Too. It will be taking place on February 23rd at the Robert J. Cabral Ag Center in Stockton and will be covering a variety of topics. 
The first session will be centered on conservation economics, learning from the Colorado Cattlemen's Agricultural Land Trust Return on Investment Study. Following the morning break, there will be a discussion on what is a stewardship economy and how are they built. There will also be an introduction to the California Grazing Land Coalition after lunch, followed by a panel discussion on challenges and opportunities of conservation easements, along with a presentation on pathways to stewardship economies. Following the closing remarks, there will also be an optional small table discussion with panelists. More information on the summit is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. West Region sales agronomist for AgroLiquid, Abe Isaac, joins us today to talk about the importance of zinc in almonds. Direct correlation to yield. Uh, just like boron, uh, zinc is that way. Uh, if you're short on zinc, uh, that tree will even itself out and carry the, put the load on it that it has, has the amount of zinc. Zinc is an enzyme builder, and it is uh, it just helps set that fruit. And that's not just true of almonds. That's true of all crops. And uh, if you're short on zinc, you're going to have some serious yield limitations. And so you've got to make sure that you keep that zinc up in that level. You, tissue tests are very good for that, um, and that will tell you what you've got in that leaf. And, uh, again, when you're, when you're going through there, you put that synergistic effect in there with the multiple micronutrients together. Make sure you have zinc in there, and you hit it, and, and you get it covered because uh, you don't need much but you do need some, and a little bit goes a long way, especially multiple times. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Results from the new census of ag. That's coming up on this line of ours. USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service this week announced the 2022 Census of Agriculture results. The information collected directly from producers shows a continued decline in the total number of U.S. farms. However, the data also shows a rise in the number of new and beginning farmers and young producers. New and beginning farmers are defined as those operating 10 or fewer years on any farm, and young producers are those under the age of 35. NAS Administrator Hubert Hammer says overall, though there are always changes across U.S. agriculture, the data remains largely consistent with the previous ag census. The data also shows that there are 1.9 million farms and ranches, down 7% from 2017, with an average size of 463 acres. That's up 5%. The leading ag-producing county in the nation is Fresno County of California, which ranked higher than 23 states. Meanwhile, the Agriculture Secretary expressed concern about the reported number of total farms and total farmland within the Census of Agriculture, Two particular data points within the recently released USDA 2022 Census of Agriculture raised the concern of the Agriculture Secretary. It was at the census release event Tuesday at USDA headquarters when Secretary Tom Vilsack pointed out, Survey after survey continues to show a decline in the number of farms and in the farmland. In terms of specific numbers, In 2017, when we did the survey, there were 2,042,220 farms. Today, the survey reports we have 1,900,487 farms. That's 142,000 fewer farms in five years. And regarding total farmland, In 2017, we had almost, well, a little over 900 million acres of land and farming. Five years later, we have 880 million acres. So we've lost 20 million acres. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. An expert says if you are over 65 years of age, many phone and online scammers may be targeting you. Gary Crawford has this report. 
The COVID pandemic brought more than just sickness and a big change in lifestyles. It brought a huge increase in phone and Internet scams. Most everybody was stuck at home and the scammers were taking advantage. In 2020, before COVID really got going, Americans lost just under $20 billion to scammers. That was bad enough. But in 2021, the money lost shot up to about $30 billion. The Federal Trade Commission estimates that last year, four out of five Americans lost money to scammers. And unfortunately, older adults are, as a whole, are a particularly favorite target. They're more likely to listen, they are often more trusting, and they're more easily caught off guard. That's Barbara Stockerbrand. She's an extension educator, Kansas State University. But there's another reason that older folks are top targets. It's because they tend to have more assets to steal. That's why many young people report losing some money to phone and online scammers, but actual money lost much greater among Americans 65 and older. But Barbara says it's hard to put a figure on that because older people are less likely to report being scammed, partly because they're embarrassed that they were taken in in the first place. They fear they will be seen as not being able to handle their financial and banking processes anymore, possibly with a potential loss of control and independence. Fear that their actions may isolate them even more from family or even their familiar environments, and maybe even fear that they may be placed in a nursing home. And many of us older folks may not remember all of the details of what exactly happened and how they were scammed. So rather than lose control over their affairs, older adults may hide this type of abuse. And of course... The predators are counting on uh, that, and they're counting on those older adults to remain silent. And the scammers have several scenarios targeted to older potential victims, for example. Someone calling from Social Security, needing your personal information or confirming that. Or the IRS uh, with threats of arrest, possibly, if outstanding taxes aren't paid. There may be a call or an email. Um, a friend or a grandchild is in trouble and in need of money immediately. Uh-huh. Yes, immediately. That's one clue that it's a scam when they say you need to send money now. Other warning signs of a scam? Well, if it comes online or in an email. It may include bad grammar or incorrect spelling, which is a good sign. It may be coming from another country. Even though the address or the caller ID will show a number with a familiar area code or zip code. Also, the message may have a link or links for you to click on. Don't do it because those can install software where the scammer may be able to gain access to your computer and then maybe through your computer to other possible computers of friends and family. For a lot more tips on scams, go online to federaltradecommission.gov, federaltradecommission.gov. That's no scam. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Unique plant characteristics coupled with an outlaw past provides challenges and buildup on hemp germoplasms to use in developing future plant traits and consumer products. Rod Bain reports. Long before the legalization of industrial hemp for agricultural purposes through the 2018 Farm Bill, well before it was declared a controlled substance in 1970, this plant was utilized in a multitude of ways in our country. Historically, it was one of the most important crops in the United States during the colonial period. It was primarily used as a fiber crop, and it was used to make things like rope and sails. Hemp is also a wonderful grain crop, so harvesting the seeds, they have interesting and useful fatty acids and protein content and profiles. In addition, hemp makes all these different molecules that have tremendous 
promise for medicinal purposes. There's a lot of folks that are using the inner wood of hemp to make construction materials. Different companies are using hemp in automotive manufacturing and other kind of industrial applications. Zach Stansel is a USDA research geneticist in New York State curator of the Platt Genetic Research Unit Hemp Collection. Since 2021, we have been permitted to begin acquiring these genetic resources from really all over the world. So right now, we have 522 unique varieties of hemp collected from about 40 different countries. And because industrial hemp wasn't a legal substance across the U.S. for a long period of time, from a research perspective, we're we're frankly 70 years behind in research and that is super challenging for growers. Essentially, a lot of the materials that we're working with are kind of analogous to like heirloom varieties that are not particularly high yielding or disease resistant. Plus breeding of other genetic traits that can be applied to various hemp cultivars based on their application. That's in addition to other research challenges associated with hemp, strictly following federal and state regulations. So it's taken a lot of planning and coordination to make sure that we're doing everything by the book. And working with a plant with unique biological characteristics. We talk about hemp as being a dioecious crop. Some individuals can have both male and female flowers. Hemp is pollinated by wind rather than by insects. So hemp pollen can travel quite a distance. So how can hemp genetic research maintain the integrity of individual varieties? More on that in a future program. I'm Ron Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Brian German has this week's almond update. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. The Almond Board's recently made available all the videos from the Nutrient Summit that was held back in January, including the presentation on soil preparation and nutrient amendments with Orchard Crops Farm Advisor Phoebe Gordon. The following is an excerpt from her discussion on what to consider when planting almond trees. The big ones, I would say, are nitrogen and zinc. And after concluding this phosphorus research trial, I also say phosphorus now. Potassium and boron, those tend to be much more important for bearing trees. Um, the vegetative needs just don't seem to be as high as um, what the trees need for bearing. And I'll have a little case study of where you can go wrong with overapplying potassium to non-bearing trees. In general, uh, with almonds, you can over-fertilize with nitrogen. You can do that with other crops as well. I haven't fried almonds, but I've fried pistachios a couple of times. Um, they tend to be pretty sensitive to really heavy rates of nitrogen, especially when it's hot and they're taking up a lot of water. So um, I know David Dahl did some research before he left, and he found that he looked at different sources of nitrogen fertilizer for first leaf trees, and he also looked at rates. And so he found that the source of nitrogen didn't really matter. They got uh, the same growth with every with uh, whatever form of nitrogen he included. But they found that the rate that first leaf trees needed was approximately you know, three to four ounces of nitrogen per tree. There's been a lot of research looking at holer to recycling. There's been an, a bit of an evolution there. 
Early on, back in the Iron Wolf days, which if anyone's ever listened to Brent Holtz's talk, um, you guys know what I'm talking about. They thought that you needed to double the amount of nitrogen that you added per tree to make sure that you didn't have nitrogen starvation. However, when he and May started to do, May Columber, um, started to do timing trials, they found that you actually don't need to do that if you get the nitrogen on very close to leaf out. So we used to say you want to wait for about six inches of growth before you start fertilizing the tree, and they found that in a whole orchard recycled site, if you get that on very early, um, you'd actually probably don't need to increase the rate, and you can keep it about three to four ounces of nitrogen per tree. Um, I do have fertilization rates further on. It's rare, but sometimes I do see sites where you're getting some yield in the second leaf. Um, so I would say if you aren't, you know, stick with that same rate of nitrogen per tree. If for some reason you decide to harvest that site, um, I would switch to fertilizing based off of yield. And of course, third leaf on, you want to switch to fertilizing based off of yield because those yield values do take into account um, vegetative growth demands. And of course, don't apply more than one ounce of actual nitrogen in a month. And if you're applying it all at once, um, yeah, just be careful. Okay, so potassium. I'm not aware of any rate trials for potassium for non-bearing trees. Um, the vegetative needs are about 20 to 30 pounds a tree. Um, I don't think, uh, in mature orchards, I don't think that's so different in non-bearing trees. Something to keep in mind, too, is that unlike nitrogen, potassium is not mobile in soils. You know, it's positively charged soils or negatively charged, it's going to stick around. Um, and so you can get into danger if you start really trying to push on that potassium. We have some values for, I think they're developed for vegetative crops, you know, about 2% of the CEC or 200 parts per million. Probably means that your, your soils have uh, good potassium levels, but of course, if you're bearing, you want to be base, uh, applying what has been removed. I did go on a farm call once to an almond, a very, very vigorous almond orchard in a, a very sandy soil here in Merced County. And they had these weird deficiency symptoms in their leaves. And after talking to them and looking at their leaf tissue analysis, I found out that while they had actually been really hammering the site with potassium to try to build up potassium in the soil, before they started bearing, what happens is they actually induced a magnesium deficiency. So you can have what's called cation imbalances where um, adding a lot of one uh, ion can actually impede the uptake of other ions. It also displaces cations from the cation exchange capacity. So just like we use calcium to remove sodium, adding a different kind of cation like potassium can displace other cations from the CEC. So this can be fixed, but you know, and I don't think it's applicable everywhere, but it is kind of, you know, be careful if you have a sandy soil with a low CEC and yields aren't great, you can probably cause some problems. Something I did want to mention for leaf sampling, I've personally seen this myself in my fertilization projects with non-bearing trees. You might get leaf critical values that don't quite make sense, and it's important to keep in mind that these leaf critical values have been developed for bearing trees. So they're shipping out nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium to the fruit. And something else to keep in mind too is that when you're sampling in a mature orchard, you're sampling spur leaves that have formed at the beginning of the season and they're accumulating calcium and magnesium throughout the entire season because that's just what happens that um, the, the leaves uh, increase in those values over time. And so if you're not sampling leaves that have been formed very early in the season, you're probably not. You might be sampling something that's like a recently matured leaf. You might have values that are much lower for calcium and magnesium, higher for 
nitrogen and potassium because you know you don't have those those dynamics going on. Keep in mind that you know if the the trees are vigorous um, and the leaves aren't showing zinc deficiency, so small needle shaped tiny internodes, you you, you know, you, you might get, um, the trees might be fine, but you're still getting values that don't quite fit with the sufficiency standards. Something else to keep in mind too, um, zinc, if you do it as a foliar spray, binds to the leaf cuticle. So if you've done a zinc foliar spray, your values from your leaf tissue test aren't, they're not accurate. They're going to be reflecting what's landed on those leaves. To learn more, you can watch the full presentation at almonds.com slash summits. Thank you, Brian. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour now for more news. While some state deadlines have already passed for application to USDA's Organic Transition Initiative, it is still important for interested producers to show their interest before the March 1st national deadline. Rod Bain has more. Producer applications continue to be accepted for USDA's Organic Transition Initiative. But as Lindsay Haynes of the Natural Resources Conservation Service points out, each state has its own deadline for OTI sign-up. While it'd be nice to have one deadline for everyone across the country, it doesn't really support the local needs as well. Every state has different batching deadlines. And in some cases, state deadlines have already passed. Yet Haynes points to the importance of interested producers submitting OTI applications to their local NRCS office by the March 1st national deadline. We want to get folks in the office to sign up, whether the deadline is passed or not. So then if a state deadline is not missed, they will be definitely considered for this year. If a state deadline has been passed, once the national folks take a look at the demand and the need, an additional allocation will go to the states. And then states can then decide if your deadline is passed, do they want to fund a few more or do they want to delay till next year? And those that haven't passed the deadline, they will be considered for this year. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We've been telling you about the new information in the Census of Agriculture this morning. With more, here's Michael Clements. Newly released results from the 2022 Census of Agriculture paint a clear picture of the status of farming and ranching in the U.S. American Farm Bureau Federation Chief Economist Roger Cryan says the census offers a wealth of data across all of agriculture. It tells us everything about farming and ranching in the U.S. It tells us about where the farms are county by county. It tells us about the detail on the costs and inputs used by farms of a particular type. They have data broken out by commodity type. There's a lot of detail on farming practices on conservation practices, marketing practices, just endless detail. The census shows there are fewer farmers and ranchers in business in 2022 compared to the previous census conducted in 2017. We've got 141,000 fewer farms than we did five years ago, 20 million fewer acres farmed than we had five years ago. As the world rolls forward, it's really important to have enough land to produce the ever-growing needs of the world. That's one of the reasons why Farm Bureau is so supportive of conservation programs that focus on working land. And it's one of the reasons why the Farm Bill itself is so important to help farmers keep getting through the tough years so that they can keep producing in the long run. Brian says the data is useful across the entire industry and beyond. There's just so much use for this data for everybody who buys and sells from farmers, for farmers themselves, for everybody who serves farmers like we do, for all the government agencies, you name it. This is an incredibly rich source of data. And I know that when you see that kind of detail, you wonder how confidential is the information given over by the farmers. That information is very confidential. If you're worried about the confidentiality of your data, just ask folks at your state ag statistics office, and they'll tell you chapter and verse from memory of a statute that protects the farmers when they offer it up for statistical collection. Learn more at fb.org. Michael Klibitz, Washington. 
The 2022 USDA Census of Agriculture is now out, and it shows how important California agriculture is. Fresno County ranked number one in the U.S. for agricultural sales. Agricultural sales in Fresno County were greater than those in 23 states. After Fresno County, the remaining top 10 California counties for ag production are Tulare, Monterey, Kern, Merced, Imperial, San Joaquin, Stanislaw, Santa Barbara, and Kings. Census of Agriculture information, which is collected directly from producers, shows a continued decline in the total number of California farms. However, the data also shows an increase in the value of agriculture sales in California. The 2022 Census of Agriculture data shows the following key trends for the state. The number of farms decreased to 63,134, a 10% decline from 2017. The average size of farms increased by 10% to 383 acres. That covers 24.2 million acres of farmland. The market value of agricultural products sold totaled $59 billion, which is up nearly $14 billion from 2017. Total farm production expenses totaled $49.3 billion, which is up $11.5 billion from 2017. California is the top state using renewable energy-producing systems in agriculture. Solar is the most common renewable energy-producing system on farms and ranches in the Golden State. The average age of the California farmer, 59.9, which is up from 59.2 in 2017. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.